0: There's two Class 4s, including one called Hamburg Falls, which is about a six-foot vertical fall. And we hit that, and poor Al was pulling on the oars, and I thought we were done in. There were a couple more. We stopped and looked, and he said, "I don't know if we can get down through this."
1: That was Dennis Lee talking about a rapid on the Middle Klamath River and what it feels like going into a new rapid for the first time with a drift boat. We are on episode number 26 hey, wait, did we just pass the six-month mark of the show? Hells yeah! The Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. Before I get into the intro, I want to remind you to follow us on Instagram at instagram.com slash wetflyswing. In today's episode, I interview Dennis Lee, a retired California Department of Fish and Game fisheries biologist and author of The Half Pounder, A Steelhead Trout. We talk about the significance of the half pounder steelhead, talk about the birthplace of steelhead fishing, and get into fishing the eel, trinity, and rogue rivers. Dennis shares his experience and tips on putting together and publishing his own book. Don't miss this as Dennis tells us why we should care about the 12-inch C-run steelhead. That's right, 12 inches, not 12 pounds. It's all about diversity. So, without further ado, here's Dennis Lee. How's it going, Dennis?
0: Going great. Nice to talk to you, Dave.
1: Good. Great to have you on. Uh, we've got, a, I think, a pretty interesting conversation here uh, about steelhead and we've had season one has been a real, a heavy theme on, uh, on steelhead. And I think the cool thing you bring here is you're going to talk about a life history of, um, you know, steelhead, one of their, one of their different life history tapes. I'll bet you a lot of people haven't heard about, and it's the half pounder. So, um, we're going to get into that and, and talk about why that's significant and maybe why people should should care about that, and then uh, and go from there. But uh, before I get into it, I would love to start off with you know just kind of how you got into fly fishing and steelhead and, and where the focus on half pounders, how that all began.
0: Well, it started uh, probably going to school at Humboldt State University in 1968. I had the opportunity to fish occasionally with my dad for trout in the Sierra Nevada. But when I went to school, I'd gone up there early to play water polo and swim for the team, and having extra time, I used to wander around trying to find some fishing. And in the late summer, early fall, there's a run of oh well, small salmon. The locals colloquial call them chub salmon. Actually, they're grills so and maybe a few bigger fish. And I used to go down there and watch uh, fly casters making these huge casts across these slow pools with these shooting heads, nine foot rods and slow retrieving lines back and hooking these huge salmon sometimes, 12, maybe 15 pounds. And then that just got me excited and said, I got to do this. So that was first uh, start of really seriously fly fishing. And then having contacts at school, having opportunities, people around the area, it really helped me kind of hone and then just kept pursuing that through my life. Fortunately, after uh, school, I ended up with a career with the California Department of Fish and Game. As a fishery biologist and uh, lasted about 36 years, and I've been retired about 10 years now. Still love fly fishing, especially for salmon and steelhead, and of course, fly tying.
1: Nice, nice. And then, and that kind of got you into the whole uh, realm of Rogue River and uh, Klamath. And maybe you could just go a little bit over just. uh Oh a little bit of background on maybe you could just start us off with the the half pounder that life history and talk about um, i mean you've got a book you wrote the uh, the half pounder a steelhead trout um, a beautiful book i uh, you sent me a copy and i've been kind of looking through it and reading a little bit. It's, uh, yeah, beautifully put together, lots of great photos and lots of great color plates with your fly patterns. And so you obviously have a lot of uh, fly tying experience as well. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe you just talk about a little bit first on the life history, what that's all about, and then bring that back into fishing for them and in, in the rivers that, where you can get them.
0: Okay. So going back to school, obviously, you know, we are traipsing around the various rivers, especially the Klamath and Trinity and also uh, the Lower Eel River. And even back then, we had a run of half pounder steelhead and and late summer, early fall adult fish coming in that were fishable. Uh, regulations have changed now, and you basically because the low flow closures can't fish the lower eel. But the Klamath and Trinity provided great opportunities. We wandered up to the Rogue, and occasionally even visited the Umpqua for you know summer steelhead. We had uh, a lot of professors who were very much into fly fishing. Uh, wondered Some of them wondered how we ever even graduated with all the fishing nice. we were doing at the time. But uh, after that, you know, I had this career and had the opportunity through the 1980s to actually supervise our Klamath River Salmon and Steelhead Study. We operated, uh, similar to the Oregon studies, a netting uh, program and project on the lower river, tagged fish, operated a creel census to recover tags, and then monitored the upstream progress of the fish at various weirs on tributaries in the Trinity and Klamath, and then at the two hatcheries, Iron Gate on the Klamath and Trinity River Hatchery on the Upper Trinity. And so as a result of that, uh, we prepared a uh, major report to fulfill our contract obligations with the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation. Uh, They were our uh, contractor through an Anadromous Fish Act fund. Well, um, it was just a data report, and kind of disappeared, and then when I was rehired uh, back after retirement as a retired annuitant, so I currently still do that and work on some of our Central Valley salmon and steelhead hatchery issues, pursuing through some of the literature, a lot of it's online, I actually discovered that 150-page manuscript. Now, back at the end of the 80s, we didn't have computers. Uh, These were all typed by a clerk typus. all the figures and drawings were done by hand. And so someone had, uh, I think, accidentally scanned that. So I actually was able to capture a PDF version of that original report. So I was thinking there's all this good information that never really saw the light of day, run timing, when the fish were in on the Klamath, how fast they migrated, where they went. It would be nice to make that information available to anglers. So I started working on that. Uh, What started as just maybe a short article turned into a chapter, and then realizing that no one had really explained and written about the half-pounder life history. Now, it's mentioned a lot. Uh, You see it oftentimes mentioned in reports on these rivers, either the Eel, the Klamath, or the Rogue. But you don't see that other than maybe an early reference to 1925 when they were first described by John Otterbein Snyder after some guy caught 14 fish at Ferndale and shipped them to him for identification. He said, eh, they look like half-pounders, kind of like the rogue. Mm-hmm. And so uh, half-pounders were, you know, basically a small steelhead that weighs just about half a pound. Most of the studies either that we did on the Klamath or ODF&W did at the lower rogue, and they're continuing that operation, by the way, Most of them run about 11, maybe 12 inches to a maximum of about 16 inches. So these fish have migrated out in the springtime like normal progeny of steelhead, look like little rainbow trout, enter the ocean, and then will only spend about three, maybe a maximum of four months before returning back to the fresh water. So this uh, run of half-pounders has been going on probably for millennia. No one has a real good idea why. You can have a lot of... uh, Uh, theories as to why and what advantages there might be, but the rogue Klamath and the eel are the only rivers in the whole West Coast or even the whole world which has these huge numbers of these half-pounders. Now, that short little life history might appear in other rivers in the West Coast, but not in the numbers you see Mm. on these rivers. Mm. Matter of fact, on the Klamath, 100% of the fish will demonstrate the half-pounder life history, whereas on the Trinity side you get anywhere from 15 to 30% of them demonstrate that. Similar like on the Rogue, a large portion of these late summer fall fish, almost like more than 90%, do demonstrate this half-pounder life history. And then, of course, they overwinter in freshwater, migrate back out to spring, and then will return again the following late summer fall after, again, spending maybe three or four months feeding in the ocean, growing a little bit more. They'll be about 18 to 24 inches, but now they'll come back as a originally sexually immature fish migrate up to the holding areas and then spawn the following spring like any other steelhead would but they're not big they run no 18 to 24 inches they will repeat that we saw as many five returns from a fish and so you can get fish up to maybe eight to twelve pounds with that similar type life history Hmm.
1: gotcha gotcha that's interesting so so just like any species, the, it has that life history just to, it's a diversity. It's not just one, um, you know, one size. It was funny. I was, I had deck Hogan on, on episode uh, number 20 and uh, he was talking about a Dean river giant steelhead that, that spooled his line and, uh, and be, beach beach <laughs> itself on this opposite side of the river. And, uh, so you hear all these stories about these crazy monster steelhead. And now we're talking about, you know, a 12 inch steelhead, what, what do you think is the significance? I mean, I know, obviously, biologically, there's a big significance. But for somebody that, that maybe wants to go fishing, say, on the Rogue, I fished the Rogue a number of times. I mean, why would, why would a steelheader care about half-pounders?
0: Well, one of the things that you always hear about steelhead is that it's a fish of a 1,000 casts. Well, if I had to make a 1,000 casts to catch a half-pounder, I might go home. <laughs> but these little bright, uh, shiny fish are very aggressive. So if I'm not catching 10 to 20 half pounders in a day of fishing, then I'm probably not going to be very happy. Now, we're not using the big seven and eight weight rods that you might experience up in British Columbia or even in, say, bigger winter streams in Washington or Oregon. So we're fishing four and five weight two-handed sticks. Some people fish them with a single hand rod, maybe a five weight or six weight single hand rod. And so you get a lot of hits in a day. If you're not catching fish, they're not there. It's just time to move on to another run or riffle to find them. Mm -hmm. But they're very aggressive, uh, normally fishing floating lines, little buggy flies. And so it makes for a very enjoyable day when you downsize the tackle to match the fish. And, of course, there's also every now and then those adults, which will run, you know, maybe up to three to six pounds. And sometimes the ratio is, you know, maybe one or two adults for every 10 half-pounders in some years it's 50-50 and it varies hmm. seasonally
1: and does it also vary a little bit by location i know in my experience on uh, on the rogue we we floated the wild and scenic section a number of times and down there, it's almost all of uh, the half-pounders. And, and that's one thing that you love about them is that, you know, it's like the tug is the drug. I mean, you still get that pull, even though it's a small uh, small trout-type fish. You still get that steelhead pull, which, uh, which is pretty cool. But, yeah, are they on the rogue, or do you, is that what you find, of the, adult, the larger fish are higher up?
0: It, it's, uh, you're exactly right. The, for some reason, the half-pounders don't seem to migrate as far up. So the true spring-run summer steelhead, like from B.C., Umpqua, and then we have a couple of populations in California on the Yule River, for example, Middle Fork. Those fish migrate way up to those headwater areas, oftentimes, at least in the States, often inaccessible to anglers. But the half-pounders don't seem to. They sometimes migrate up to that first canyon area. So on the Klamath, you'll see them up maybe 80 to 100 miles up as far as Happy Camp. Sometimes you see stray fish further up, but... When you get further up, then you're expecting to see more adult fish. And the same is on the Rogue. The half-pounder group seems to migrate up into that canyon area you mentioned, Mm -hmm. sometimes not much past that. So when you move on further up, say, into the Grants Pass, Medford area Mm -hmm. of the Rogue, your expectation is you're going to see more adult fish. And if you see a half-pounder, I'm always kind of like surprised. Oh, look at this little guy. So I'm all the way up here. I'm amazed.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. But the lower
0: rivers, you know, 20, 30 miles you're going to see half-founders with, of course, that same number of mixture of delts as they're coming in.
1: As they're coming in, yeah. That's cool. And do guys, um, are guys typically trying to, I mean, can you target just the larger fish down in that wild and scenic section? Or is it pretty much if you're swinging a fly, you know, wet fly swing sort of thing, you're going to take, you know, whatever's there?
0: Yeah, that seems to be the traditional way. You know, the wet flies swing, cast across, let it swing down. And it doesn't seem to make a big difference now. When I was going to school and starting to fish, obviously you had people, you know, fishing night crawlers and bait and stuff, and on the bottom. And like a lot of uh, fly anglers, we thought we had to fish on the bottom. So early on, most of our fishing was done with uh, high D sinking heads, shooting heads and trying to get down. But slowly, as fly lines evolved, we kind of went to sink tips when they came out, and then finally just went to full floating lines. And most of uh, The fishing I do and the friends I do on the Klamath and Rogue tend to be a Scandinavian style of Mm -hmm. two-handed rods. And, uh, you know, the rivers have changed. Uh, If you're not in the upper river using a two-handed rod, you're going to be largely handicapped. And that's because, you know, we haven't had a major flood through this northern California, southern Oregon region since 64. So we have these huge riparian zones of willows and blackberries. And when you're out there waiting two or three feet in the riffle or run, you don't have backcast run. I do remember we had backcast room back in the late uh, uh, 60s and 70s when I first started fishing. Never thought about that. But now 50 years later, yeah, there is no more backcast room once you get above those major tribs that help blow out the lower rivers. You know, the lower 10, 20, maybe 30 miles of either the Klamath or Rogue still have open bars, open areas to fish. But once you get above that, it gets more difficult
1: yeah that's right that's right and that sounds like yeah they the scandy definitely there are some places you know that the shoots is similar to having a nice scandy out there fishing just a floating line is nice um and you mentioned, yeah, the brush, the uh north Umquas another one. I remember uh Dean Finerty in episode nineteen was talking about how the north was the same way that you used to be able to cast with a single handed rod, but now it's <laughs> people were cutting the brush back then too, you know, to keep things yes. open. But uh but yeah, that's not really going on as much anymore, I guess, with the riparian uh, ordinances and things like that. But uh yeah, no, that's great. Now what's your so you mentioned the the two handed uh Spay uh, spay rod. What, what was your transition like into? Um, you know, everybody's got a little different. Uh, you know, getting into it. How, how was it? How did it turn out for you?
0: Well, obviously, we you know fished a lot of single hand rods until about the early two thousands, and I think you know the two handed rods were getting popular in the especially the Pacific Northwest. But I remember uh, my wife and I were fishing the Rogue River near Agnes, and I have a very uh, dear old friend who's kind of a mentor. His name's Al Perryman. He lives in Rogue River, Oregon, probably one of the best steelheaders I've ever met. Originally met him here in the Sacramento area when he lived here back in the uh, uh, late 60s, early 70s. And I was uh, started halfway down the road because there had been a large group of willows next to the shoreline at the top of the run. And, of course, couldn't fish it with a single-hand rod. But he had driven over from uh, uh, Grant's Pass area and had dropped down in. And was at the top of the run, and I was watching him, and he's making these fantastic casts across the river. And I'm like, what in the world is he doing? How's he? And I kept looking and looking, and finally we got together, and I go, oh, that's one of those two-handed spay rods. <laughs> you're making, you're making spay. And so that just like, oh my goodness. So the big deal was no longer did we have to worry about where we could fish. Now we were looking for places where we thought held fish, and going after them with a two-handed rod and i think the evolution in the last you know 15 20 years has just been phenomenal for uh, especially steelheaders who like to fish with a fly
1: yeah yeah it's made it made it easy which is great a lot of a lot of newbies uh makes it a lot easier for people to get into it so that's that's a definitely a good thing um so you're mentioning, um, I guess we're talking a little bit about the Rogue here, and the Rogue is definitely a river. I haven't fished the other rivers you mentioned uh, yet, but the Rogue is one I'm very, uh, pretty familiar with. And you fished it quite a bit too, not not as much as the others, but quite a bit?
0: Yeah, especially in the recent years with uh, Perryman being in Rogue River. I visited him starting in July, and we fish it on through end through October, sometimes into Thanksgiving. And then we'll even bounce back down to the Klamath when it's good and go back and forth. Uh, the runs, you can fish the uh, Rogue Lower River starting as early as, so oh, maybe middle of August with with reasonable expectation of finding fish. The Klamath seems to be one or two weeks later. And then, of course, the fish are just migrating upstream. And by uh, now, you can find those uh, early summer fish in July and August already up in the upper Rogue. Maybe the area you're familiar with, say, around Grants Pass, Medford area. But then you get another slug of fish coming in in that late summer, early fall period with some more adults in it. So we can continue on good until basically it just gets kind of cold and miserable and it's mm-hmm. not fun fishing anymore.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. And, and do you know a little bit, I know the Rogue, I mean the Northum Kauai is a river that has you know, kind of a very historied uh, fly fishing history. Does the, the Rogue, do you know much about that whole history? Could you explain a little bit about how, um, you know, the significance of that to the whole steelhead, uh, whole steelhead <laughs> game?
0: the you know the early history is kind of interesting uh, i'm working on a new book on california winter steelhead and have done a lot more research into how it all started and there really wasn't much recreational fishing you know in the uh, middle of the 1800s but it was just kind of starting although most of the effort was directed towards trout and of course at that time most well very few rivers had major dams on them we still had steelhead migrating way up tributaries and I think a lot of the effort in those summer trout fisheries were actually for the progeny, the juveniles of adult steelhead that have spawned. And so the numbers you see from those areas into southern Oregon are literally you know, people catching hundreds of fish a day, but they were trout. They were you know, baby steelhead, actually. Hmm. And so as time went on, people became more aware. There was a lot of kind of controversy. There were laws passed as to whether you could catch the juvenile fish or not. Was this a... Salmon, was this a salmon trout? What it was? And that kind went on until probably into the late 1800s, and people started actually recognizing that steelhead were something different than salmon. The Rogue had a long history. Uh, the drift boats that you see now, the McKenzie style, Rogue River style, were very popular. Uh, guides would stick two people in the front of the boat, usually with a fly rod. You know, they didn't have much conventional gear, maybe a funky. Bait casting outfit was back then. No spinning rods, obviously. But they would put two clients in the front, have them with a fly rod, run the line out, and then just roll them down the river going back and forth. (laughs) On the rogue, uh, the guides oftentimes ask the client to kind of either lift and drop the rod to put a little twitch or impart some action. Now, remember, the half-pounders and these late summer fish, many of them are very actively feeding. So that little twitching motion really excited the fish, Mm -hmm. and you'd get hits all over. So that kind of was a standard and very popular rogue method of fishing in the early 1900s and on. And uh, it's been very successful even to this day. A lot of people you see who are actually fishing for half-pounders will put that little twitch (laughs) every few seconds in their line. And oftentimes it will actually excite a half-pounder or a little bit bigger adult fish to take your fly.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's the twitch. So, yeah, that's uh, and and when you're doing that, you're not, um, your leaders tied on to your fly just typically like normal. Uh, you're not doing any like right. sort of a riffle hitch or anything like that.
0: No, no, um, most with you know traditional wet fly presentations, the patterns for you know the half pounder and those late summer adult fish have always been very buggy patterns. Uh, very popular ones have always been silver Hilton, that black grizzly and silver coloration, mm-hmm. other patterns, brindle bugs, burlaps, and things. I mean, they're real buggy-looking patterns because these fish are actually feeding, unlike you know most reports of Steelhead, not feeding actively in freshwater, but they're becoming more trout-like as time goes on and they're actively feeding. So you fish a real bugging thing. Uh, a mend, which makes the fly hop a little bit, and then a little dead drift will excite a fish to strike. Or that little twitch. Mm-hmm. But uh, back in the old days, the guides would just row the boat along. The clients sit in the front very leisurely fishing their way down, runs and riffles that way. It was very effective. Very nice. effective back then.
1: Still is. Yeah. yeah still. And, and when you get a fish uh, that takes, whether it's a half pound or an adult steelhead, do you, um, what's your reaction? I mean, do you set the hook? Do you do nothing? What, what do you do when you first get that hit
0: or that most touch? Of the, yeah, most of the hits are strong. It very, that's what makes You know, the tug is the drug you mm-hmm. said. But most hits in that, you know, summer early fall period are hard. They're not little subtle takes. You occasionally get a fish to pluck at the fly. You can recast, cover the fish again. You're probably going to take that fish. We're not talking fish that are ones and twosies and runs and riffles. We're talking about tens, twenties, maybe hundreds of them in these runs and riffles at a time. Mm. It is it is not unusual to take ten or twenty fish out of one run, mm. fish down through it, go back through. The takes are real hard. They hit hard. You can set the hook, although usually it's not necessary. Half-pounders are very, very acrobatic. Six, eight, ten jumps from these little guys is not unusual. Bigger fish, the same thing. Probably occasionally you could fish a skater. My experience has been that uh, they seem to be maybe overly aggressive. I don't hook many fish on a skater. It's kind of fun to watch them jump at it all the time. But eventually, I go back to just a wet fly and fish that way, and hook and catch fish. Hmm.
1: Cool. And I was thinking about the drift boat comment you made. That, um on the Rogue, I've taken my drift boat down there a few times, and it's kind of probably the most technical thing that that I've ever run. You know, you know, in any given year, at least in a drift boat. Seems like that's the place where I always end up banging a few rocks, um, and you and you got uh, like Blossom Bar, you know those sorts of things. What? Yeah, I mean, are the other rivers you mentioned? Uh, maybe you talk about the other uh, half-pounder rivers. Are those all same thing? People are floating those with drift boats and um, and fishing um, similar methods. Yes,
0: yes, yes, and no. Um, like the Lower Rogue, the Lower Klamath uh, is not accessible by road. I mean, you can fish the Rogue from the mouth all the way up to Lobster Creek, about 15 miles. Then there's a little canyon area, Kwisatna Campground in the center, and then you've got the Agnes up to uh, uh, Ilahi, available and fishable, and all accessible from the road. So you really don't need a boat, but a lot of people fish it or use a jet boat for access. The lower Klamath, you have a couple miles of access in the lower river. Now remember, everything from the mouth all the way up for about 30 miles is Yurok Indian Reservation, one mile on each side of the river. Mm. There is no real road access. There's a couple private roads in, but no real access until you get about 15 or 18 miles up to a little community called Johnson's. So most of the lower Klamath is fished with a jet boat. Once you get past uh, Johnson's up towards Wichipec, Highway 96 follows the river. It's all U.S. forest land and very accessible except for a few private inn holdings. There are some areas that make great canyon drifts with drift boats, rafts, and uh, we've found, as what you mentioned, banging a few rocks, a few Class 4s, that a cataraft is actually mm. one of the better yeah. vehicles for accessing. Not for fishing from, just for giving transportation to runs and riffles.
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense. The rafts are definitely a little yeah. more forgiving. Yes. Yeah, I remember the first time I, actually the first time I was on the, uh, you know, going back to the Rogue, I was hiking the trail. That's the other cool thing. It was a beautiful trail that that, hike, that you can hike along there. And I remember I was up on the trail. It was a hot day. I mean, I spent 90 or 100 and just sweating. And I had a 50-pound backpack. I looked down, there was this boat anchored up about 100 feet off the cliff in the water. And they were just kicked back, eating lunch, drinking beers and stuff. <laughs> and I remember watching those guys They're like, you know, next time I've covered this river, I'm going to have a drift boat and I'm going to be floating it because that was the way to do it. But, uh, no, it's good. I think it's cool to have, uh, being able to access, you know, rivers in multiple ways. And it sounds like those rivers are the same down there?
0: Pretty, yeah, pretty much the same. Uh, we were on the uh, upper Klamath, maybe the middle Klamath up around where the Scott River comes in. And there's a nice uh, campground up there called uh, uh, Saratotan Campground. It stays open because it's got an unimproved uh, drift boat launch there. And there aren't any really good maps or books on uh, the middle Klamath or even the road for that matter. But there's a large mm, kind of a map that the U.S. Forest Service has put up at one of the fishing access, and it showed a couple class four uh, runs down through there, and we were a little bit hesitant about doing it in a drift boat, a hard boat, but uh, we were standing at that unimproved ramp, and this guide pulled out having fished the upper area, which was very easy drift, and we asked him, what's it like down below? He said, oh, not too bad, a few rocks, but not big deal, so we thought, okay, we'll take that one. Well, there's two class fours, including one called Hamburg Falls, which is about a six foot vertical fall and we hit that and poor al was pulling (laughs) on the oars and i thought we were done in yeah there were a couple more we stopped and looked and he said i don't know if we can get down through this i said we kind of have to we don't have and we figure out ways but uh, that convinced us then that uh, the cataract was the way to go so they have a sotar cataract that really makes access much easier and safer
1: oh cool yeah sotar that's a uh, southern oregon company right are they down there not sure. Maybe. Yeah, they're not. they're
0: yeah. they're out of. Yeah, they're out of Grant's Pass. Yeah,
1: they are. Oh, cool. Uh, nice. So, yeah, getting back to your book, uh, you know, again, the the half pounder, uh, um, you know, a steelhead trout. What was the maybe you can bring us back to the process of uh, you talked about how you got in, you know, all the data and stuff like that. But actually making that decision to write a book, I mean, did it and maybe the process of going through it. I mean, how long did that take you and, and what was the whole thing like?
0: Well, as I started uh, writing that first and pulling the information out, um, I have a very good uh, fishing friend who is also a retired fishing game fishery biologist who was our editor, and he retired and moved to Sisters, Oregon. So I started sending material up to him and having him look at it and then also passing a, my, my chapters on to various friends. And they said, gee, Dennis, this is terrible. This is the driest piece. No, anyway, it wasn't good because I'm so used to writing for science publications that minimal words is what's your goal well i was trying to you know do something a little different and i was struggling at it so over time i was able to add a little bit of information which really i was trying to provide all the science information for anglers but i really needed to kind of add some stuff that made it more interesting more readable and more enjoyable book so began that process uh several years actually going back and forth finally came up with a manuscript copy. And I don't think people understand how much work goes into writing a book. I mean, if you have a publisher, they probably help a lot. But after I'd finished the writing and had it in a manuscript on the computer, I went to my wife, and uh, she's very uh, techie. She knows all this stuff. She'd gone back to school and has a couple uh, degrees, certificates in computer sciences. So I said to her, uh, do you know this particular Adobe software that you make books in? <laughs> and, of course, she said, why do you ask? <laughs> I said, well, we we should write a book. Uh-huh. And uh, that started the process. It took us about a year. There were a lot of mistakes and errors, but she was able eventually through that year put together the file that you would print a book from. So now we've got a, a file with this book. We spent a couple years on those rivers actually taking high-quality photographs, things we wanted, things that we felt would be appropriate for the book, plus, of course, all the fishing pictures. We had to add other stuff, because how many pictures of a 12- to 15-inch bright little silvery steelhead can you put in a book? <laughs> yep. that does, it gets kind of boring. Yep. So we had to kind of put other things in it, which we did. And then I had to include the fly section, a lot of history there. We did over 150 flies. I tried to research as far back as I could, Historical patterns, current patterns. There are literally hundreds, if not thousands, of patterns that have been tied for the Klamath, Rogue Rivers, you know, in our Northern California, Southern Oregon area. Many, many wonderful tires. Mm -hmm. And I tried to pick out the more popular ones, tie them, and then go through the process of photographing them and getting them in the book in a series that allow anglers to see them with the recipes. So after we'd had all that finished, we started shopping around for actually a printer. And uh, we talked to people in, you know, like San Francisco who are brokers. The book could be printed overseas in China uh, for a cost. And, you know, they really want to do about five or 10,000 copies. Mm-hmm. But we also knew that this subject of half-founders would be mostly popular in Northern California and Southern Oregon, maybe a little bit past that. And so we settled on doing only 500 copies Eventually, we were able to find a printer actually here locally in El Dorado Hills who agreed. Uh, we set a price. It's a hardcover book, foil stamping on the cover, UV cover, 80-pound paper, four-color digital printing. We had to find a current computer font to change everything in and make it look pretty. Mm-hmm. It's not just your old you know, Times New Standard or Arial fonts that you might use on your computer today. You had to do all that stuff. And then once the file was done, they looked at it. Their graphic artist and designer said, wow, this is almost perfect. We had one uh, uh, print made up, looked at it, made a couple errors or changes in pictures that we didn't think were high quality, and off we went. And uh, that was about a little more than two years ago, 500 copies. Each one is signed and numbered, and we have about 65 copies left. I oftentimes give presentations to fly clubs uh, because of the price in printing and the cost of the book, it's very difficult to sell it to shops and places like that or distributors. So I make presentations to fly clubs and uh, oftentimes, usually on the subject of the book or something similar, and then have the opportunity to sell books and offer them a discount at those meetings.
1: Gotcha. Yeah, so essentially, we've had, we've
0: yeah. Have, yeah. We've had a lot of books ordered off the Internet. We've had a number of books go to Canada as far back as Washington, D.C., a couple to Florida, which has always surprised me. But uh, there's anglers all over, and there's always people interested in subjects like this. Yeah,
1: no, it's cool. So you essentially self-published, um, I mean, did almost everything on your own, just using, uh, and what program was it that you used to do, put it all together?
0: It's an Adobe software program. I think it's probably InDesign yeah. or several. You know, you got to use the Photoshop for the pictures and all that. Yeah. And also the graphs that are in there on run timing and the maps, all that is done in those softwares because they're all compatible. They're not quite as clean. You know, I'm a PC guy coming from the state, but my wife is basically an Apple Mac user, which, you know, in the graphic arts business is where you have to be.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I was just thinking, I've talked to a number of, well, a few people on the show, including, uh, John Shuey and some other, um, editors and publishers. And yeah, it's always, there's always a little bit different, uh, take on the process and how you do it. Um, but yeah, you've put together a beautiful book, and pretty much, you know, mostly on your own. It's pretty awesome to, to just let people know that it's doable. If you have something to write about, you can put it together.
0: You can. It's a. you it got to be a labor of love. Don't plan on making any money at it. No. Nope. I think uh, I think John Chewy has mentioned that several times. Yeah. And he writes in all kinds of formats, not just fishing, but all over the place. I'm very impressed with his work.
1: That's right. That's right. Yeah. He uh, he he took me by surprise when he was uh, mentioning. Oh he you know a birding book he wrote, which I was familiar with, and then uh ocean beaches book also uh, Well, he, right. didn't, he didn't write, but he co-authored and and helped uh you know put that together so nice no that's that's great that sounds like a definitely a project that you had a lot of fun with, and are you gonna be planning on doing more well, you have another you mentioned the other winter steelhead book do you do you just plan on are you gonna keep uh putting these out there
0: well, I don't know how many you know we're not too blessed with a lot of uh, steelhead fishing opportunities. Once I've covered the half-pounder late-summer fall-run fish, the winter fish, uh, that's going to be fun because it goes all the way from the Smith River in northern California all the way down to the Tijuana River Oh yeah. because historically the Tijuana River did have a steelhead run at one time and then everything in between, recognizing that just about every steelhead river south of San Francisco either one. Uh, doesn't have a run in it. They've all been extirpated. Or two, it's closed to fishing just because all of our steelhead in California are either listed as threatened or the Southern California fish are listed as endangered. So we're really not blessed with a lot of steelhead left. I am very fortunate. I live just a few miles from the American River. We do have a winter steelhead run. It's not a native run. It's a a non-indigenous run that was brought in to the river in the 50s, an eel river strain. It provides... Probably the only winter steelhead fishery other than those we have, say, from the Russian River north on the north coast of California. Hmm.
1: Okay. Yeah, it's interesting. I always, you know, talking to folks from California. I, I, I've done, oh, I guess we're on, this. Is, this will be episode number 26. So... Uh, For any of the show notes for this one, it'll be wetflyswing.com slash 26. Um, But yeah, we've done a number of episodes now, and I haven't interviewed that many people that had a connection to California, so I'm always uh, interested, and I guess, you know, that's why, is that the further you go south, the more impacts you have on the populations. But are there any big names of people that you, um, you know, you know about or know the history of them in California that that connected to the Steelhead, um, you know, the Steelhead game or any mentors you had along the way?
0: Probably Al Perryman was, you know, my biggest mentor. I've known him for over 30 years. We fished here locally at that time. Uh, He's in the Rogue River area, fishes practically every day during the summer. He's retired now. And, uh, of course, his uh, very good friend, Gary Anderson, from Anderson Custom Rods, who's now become a very good friend of mine. He's also in that Rogue River, Gold Hill area. Uh, Both of them are original Californians that migrated to southern Oregon, Uh, Al was from the Sacramento area. Gary originally was from uh, San Jose, was a teacher at a junior college there. Uh, We all were, you know, hooked up one time or another at some of the fly shops, creative sports here in Walnut Creek that was operated by Dave Inks. Dave is now in Montana. Andy Puyans, uh, Andy passed away a number of years ago. And then, of course, uh, we usually are over at the San Francisco Anglers Club for the uh, Spearama, that was just a couple hmm. weeks ago. A lot of big names show up there. It's a great event and a lot of people. And, of course, that's casting. Uh, recognizing that that group began back in the late uh, 1800s and one of the uh, world record casts was made about 1899 hmm. at that facility over there. And uh, the Golden Gate Casting that's Ponds right. and Angler's Lodge is still still operating. The club is still there. So there's a lot of people around. Uh, we don't hear as much, you know, because obviously in California our fishing opportunities have been very limited, you know, with the great reduction in our run sizes for salmon and steelhead, with just a few places that still provide fishing opportunities. Yeah,
1: yeah, it's a definitely an uphill battle. It sounds like there's still a few opportunities, so that's that's good. Hopefully, hopefully that'll keep. Uh, well, you were you were fully in in uh, touch with uh, the natural resource piece of it, and uh, do you see some Uh, Positive, uh, any positives there in that whole thing?
0: Well, uh, it's interesting. Uh, California, back in, say, the mid-'80s, population was probably about 15 million people. California sold about 2.5 million adult fishing licenses. Today, we probably have 38 to 40 million people, but we've only sold about 1.2 licenses annually. So the angling population has really dropped off. And in terms of the population, it's really dropped very sharply. Mm-hmm. So the emphasis is not so much on recreational fishing. And our you know, resource department, like California Department of Fish and Game, has now been renamed Fish and Wildlife, hmm. reflecting some of the new challenges and duties they have, which are more environmentally resource-oriented rather than strictly recreational fishing. So there's been a real big change in that direction. And, uh, you know, we still have the huge catchable trout programs in lakes and reservoirs mm-hmm. and things like that. But it's it's been a lot of, not necessarily de-emphasized, but emphasis placed in other directions, especially in California. Large number of people trying to deal with water water issues. Gosh, we just mm-hmm. went through a big four-year drought. That was my third drought in California. Wow. And, of course, our anadromous fish resources Really suffer during drought periods. It's terrible. That's
1: right. That's right. Yeah. 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 Drought onto the thing and then climate change. I'm not sure what it's going to be like down there as far as, you know, the continuing changing climate, but yeah, that could add some, some different, uh, different mix to it as well.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Nice. Well, um, yeah, I, I had a, um, you know, a few different we've actually've answered a number of the questions as we've been going along here. Um, I was kind of thinking about you know your book is obviously a good resource for you know for steelheaders and people that are interested. Um, it, are there any resources that you would point people to other than your own stuff to, to help them you know get into Steelhead or something that that maybe you've used over the years, whether it's a book or magazine or um, online resource?
0: Well, like most people, online resources are phenomenal now. You get fly tying videos for just about anything, and I do look at them. Oftentimes, I'm perplexed in how a fly is put together or how someone did something, so I always can lose uh, mm-hmm. new information that way. Also, uh, that uh, Albany Fly Tying Expo is a wonderful opportunity where you and I talk to watch people like you sit down and tie a fly, and I learn from that. I always learn mm-hmm. new tricks like that. Uh, I love books. I have a very extensive uh, fishing library, mainly emphasizing you know salmon and steelhead, um, I think Deck Hogan's book, A Passion for Steelhead, is one of the better ones that's been written as far as a modern book. And, of course, I love uh, Shuey's books uh, on you know fly tying and flies. Classic Flies was a great book. Mm-hmm. Um, I love that one with the emphasis on the history. That's one of the things I think is important. One of the things I'm emphasizing in my California winter steelhead book is the history, trying to help people remember and not forget what we've lost in california mm-hmm. and so uh, those are always good resources i think the clubs you know everyone has clubs around them are great places and what's interesting is fly anglers uh, especially uh, people who are in clubs are oftentimes more than willing to help out beginners um, i do flight time demos all the time and i love getting beginning people and helping showing them and learning tricks and things like that i think that's great so i think that will continue Fly anglers are usually very, very giving people.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, that is that is cool on the history, too, the piece. And that's obviously, you know, this show, I try to make that a big piece of, you know, connecting the dots and talking to you. And you mentioned, you know, about Al Perryman, who I haven't um, talked about much on this show. And, yeah, I think that's a big part of the cool thing is you're in an area where it's pretty much where it all started as far as steelhead. It, you know, it may have changed a lot now with all the impacts, but... But there's a lot of history where you're at, and like you mentioned, the flies back to the 1850s. You're, you probably have patterns in your book that are that go back that far, or somewhere close, or
0: right in the uh, right in the half pounder book. You know there were some really interesting uh, events going on. Uh, one that John Shuey has mentioned was uh, John S. Ben B E N N. He was a uh, immigrant who settled in San Francisco uh, in the late 1800s. Became well noted as a fly tire, and made some of the early trips via a steamer out of San Francisco to Humboldt Bay, and then would take a carriage up to a lodge or inn, which was called Weymouth, about oh, 10 miles up on the eel. And this is in about the early 1900s, and there were a lot of very good uh, exploits written about him coming to fish that lower eel. Uh, and he was noted at that time as being the father of fly fishing mm-hmm. in california and you don't hear about that very often mm-hmm. but uh, he made a number of trips up there and if you had read and i've got a few of those experts excerpts from the newspapers the numbers of fish recounting both half pounders and adults steal it up to you know sometimes 12 15 20 pounds and salmon were phenomenal we're talking 160 fish in a day mm-hmm and this and obviously this is in the 1900s so they were fishing probably maybe greenheart or ash fly rods and what enameled lines who knows what yeah. and a few of the fly patterns most of them were you know either eastern trout patterns or maybe uh some atlantic salmon patterns and of course ben was creating along with a number of other tires at the turn of the century many steelhead patterns specifically for uh the eel and then as time went on they expanded Unique patterns for the Russian, and then even more for the Rogue also. A lot of unique name patterns, and that's continuing right on to today. Many good fly tires out there creating patterns all the time, and including all the new stuff that you see, you know, the big hit for intruder-style flies, and now you're seeing klamath (laughs) size intruder patterns being popularized as these little articulated flies that work well.
1: Uh, And are these the, the, you say uh, Klamath-style, are these small intruders?
0: Yeah, to climb a size. Okay. So your yeah. your, tra- yeah, your trailer hook is like maybe a number six or eight short shanked hook, but the whole fly is only maybe one and a quarter, one and a half inches long, but basically on a shank with a little articulation, a lot of movement. And of course, you know, those little half pounders and those late summer adult steelhead love movement. So they're deadly patterns.
1: No, that's cool. Yeah, I was just, uh, I mentioned the episode with uh, Deck Hogan. Uh... It's a pretty good way he tells a little bit of the story of, uh, the intruder, uh, how that all started with, uh, with the guys back there up in Alaska. And, uh, yeah, it was interesting to hear how, you know, cause he was involved there when they first kind of, when, uh, I guess Ed came up with that, um, that pattern and then they started getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And then finally they were just too big and, you know, I was kind of <laughs> pushing it, but yeah, no, that's exactly. cool. Yeah. So their effective patterns were. what do you think is the the biggest difference between that pattern and, you know, some of the traditional patterns you, I didn't even know. So did you have the, any of the intruder style or were they all, you had some spay patterns in there, right? And you're in your,
0: yeah, we, pattern. you know, tradition. Yeah. They're buggy little spay patterns in there. They work well. Again, it's anything buggy. I don't think most steel that are really, really selective, you know, put it in front of them. And if it's about the right size shape and movement, then they will grab. Yeah. So I think that's more important presentation, but it's fun to tie flies. Um, We do fish a lot of, I do, a lot of the larger intruder styles, rabbit strips here locally on the American for our winter fish. You know, this is a January, February fishery. The fish are 6 to 12 pounds. It's not a, you know, not half pounders or summer fish. These Mm -hmm. are winter fish, skadgets, sink tips, the whole thing. And actually my uh, favorite pattern, uh, which I've used successfully, is uh, Scotty Howell's squid row. And I love that little one, although... Although I do get a little bit of harassment from people who think that's pretty close to a bass bug uh. with all the rubber and silicone, <laughs> but it's a very effective little pattern uh, here locally and probably more so on the coast also.
1: Yeah, and what are your? Uh, do you have another pattern or two that are your kind of go-to's for uh, for steelhead? Uh,
0: we did several patterns uh, again, mainly uh, buggy patterns. We do kind of a an acronuria stonefly imitation, both in a wet fly and a nymph. Uh, the uh, stonefly is one of the principal food items of those late summer adults and half pounders on the Klamath and Lower Rogue. Uh, that's a pretty good-sized bug. Uh, I tie a little in-the-round stonefly nymph that works very well. Nothing, you know, fancy. Basically just an abdomen with a, a hackle wrapped around for a thorax. And uh, some things, they give you a little brown or gold in it seem to work well. Um, We're oftentimes, every year it seems to change, and uh, if I come up with a new pattern or something different, then Al will usually say, oh, that's so old school. That's not today. So (laughs) we're always always inventing new stuff and trying new ways to uh, catch fish. That's cool.
1: And, uh, yeah, so where where does your, you know, you've done a ton of work. You you mentioned 30-plus years uh, doing biological work, and now you're doing this. You know, was there a – you know, back in your history, a uh, kind of a turning point or anything that, uh, you know, kind of triggered this whole fisheries and, and fishing uh, lifestyle? And, uh, and, and then also a second point, that is where, do you, where does the passion come from for you?
0: Well, unfortunately, I didn't start with work. It started long before that. Uh, I actually had a teacher in the fourth grade who had aquariums in the classroom. And I, for some reason, became very interested. And so, of course, I asked my folks if I could have an aquarium which eventually led to a whole basement full of aquariums where I was rearing and breeding fish and selling them to the local pet store. And uh, I decided I wanted to be an ichthyologist. But after high school, the opportunity to go out of state was very limited due to funding. Out-of-state tuitions were just out of sight back then. My goal was uh, New York University or Utah State, both out of reach. Corvallis was a possibility, but out of reach. So I ended up at Humboldt, which then... With professors and that fly fishing opportunity really got me started in the fly fishing, and you know that fishing opportunity coupled with the work and the opportunity to be involved in both research, study, projects, set regulations, dealing with the public, all those sort of things have uh, led to you know basically a, a lifetime has been very fishy, uh, very uh, like you said a passion, and uh, I look back now and think wow. What a wonderful opportunity I had doing something I love so much for a career. Not many people can talk about that. That was just so lucky, so fabulous.
1: Yep. Yeah, no, it is, it is pretty cool to do something something you love and then have a, a chance to to give back. And, you know, you're putting books out. I guess the main reason for that is just, just sharing more of your knowledge in a, in a different format or wh- why go into, um, you know, writing the books now.
0: Well, um, I would be completely honest to say, obviously, there's a little bit of ego in that. When uh, a lot of people retire, they say, oh, I want to go off and write a book. (laughs) And uh, so that was part of it. I just wanted to do that. But then when I discovered this information I had from the Klamath studies, I said, wow, there's got to be some way to get this out. And that led to realizing that talking about half-pounders would be a unique subject a lot of people would enjoy it. It would be information that you couldn't find anywhere. And so I actually still have a lot of uh, you know research, science people, who are interested in that information. Uh, I've networked with Dave Hankin at Humboldt University. He has grad students who has now gone back looking at some of that data that we collected in the 80s, uh, reanalyzing some of it, some of the work done at the hatcheries. So part of it, I obviously say, was ego in doing that and having a book. But I also enjoy the process of writing, putting it together, working with my wife, and all those jobs. That was always, you know, has its trials and tribulations, but it was a successful project. Very proud, very proud of the work we did.
1: Nice, yeah. And I, as you're, as I was asking that question, I was thinking back all the way back to uh, episode number three, and Jay Nicholas. He mentioned he talked a little bit about how I think he had a near-death experience, you know, or sort of thing. I can't remember exactly what it was, but kind of got him thinking like man it could, we can all go any day right and like leaving leaving something for for those that uh, you know your family or whoever and that sort of thing so you know i guess that's always part of it you know having a um you know something you a legacy yeah le- legacy that's the word i was looking for so no it, it's cool. yeah
0: exactly yeah uh,
1: when do you think your next uh, your book do you have a schedule on that when the, your next book uh, is going to come out
0: uh we're still working on some of the writing trying to uh, soften up some parts of it that get a little too scientific. Uh, there's so much good research on steelhead now available, so much new stuff being done that uh, trying to get that in a format and a style that anglers would be, one, interested in and then would be able to read through rather than a technical journal article. Um, that's kind of interesting. And then trying to uh, collect some of the historical photos uh, there's a lot of good stuff out there, especially in the southern part of California, and so we're looking at doing that over the next uh, probably next year. So we're looking, you know, at least a year out before we'd ever see a published date.
1: Okay. And on your title of the the half pounder, you also have uh, a steelhead trout. Why? Um, why a steelhead trout, and not, why not just uh, a steelhead?
0: It comes from the 1925 description that John Otterbein did in our california department of Fish and game science publication in which he titled it the half pounder a steelhead trout from the eel river mm. and so i dropped the eel river part and went on with it but uh it is a steelhead trout and uh, naming is always interesting is what various names come from we could have another whole hour conversation on where the name steelhead came from why they called them salmon trout uh yeah. where steelhead originated And there's several, you know, every agency oftentimes has a little bit different one. Is it a coastal rainbow trout? Is it an inland? Is it a red band? And on and on with the science. And I kind of go through that in the half pounder, and I go into it in Mm. a little bit more detail on the Winter Steelhead book. But uh, a steelhead trout is what they are. And recognizing that, uh, you know, steelhead are, still have been re-kind of classified and placed in with the Pacific salmon, recognizing that there are kind of At least we recognize three groups of Salmonids, the eastern group, the Atlantic salmon and brown trout, the middle group, the Salvelinus, chars, brook trout, and, of course, the western trouts and Pacific salmon, cutthroat, rainbows, and all the species of salmon.
1: Right, right, yeah, there's a lot of... uh... A lot of species and subspecies and I was, you know, on that same line, you know, the Great Lakes, it's an interesting uh, thought, you know, we planted some steelhead over there and they've, you know, done well and taken off on their own. I guess you could call them wild fish now in some of those areas. Are they finding any life uh, histories over there similar to the uh, the half pounder?
0: I did have one uh, Great Lakes biologist uh, get a copy of the book and contact me and said that they do occasionally see... That life history, they have a funny little name. I think they call them skippers, hmm. and I don't know where that comes from. Uh, but again, it's that short life history that comes back early, uh, but not in the tens of thousands that we see like on the Rogue and the Clam. That's the big difference. So you could have that. You could have that little half pounder life history show up, gosh, on a coastal stream in Washington, but not in the numbers, not every year, not going on for the millennia it has in Northern California and Southern Oregon, for some reason. The, the argument is why has always been an interesting one. And I remember talking to one of the Oregon biologists many years ago, and he said, Dennis, maybe it's not an advantage, maybe it's a disadvantage. And you're actually seeing the evolution decrease to mm-hmm. where now all you find it is on the Klamath, Rogue, and Eel Rivers, whereas historically that may have been the way it was everywhere. And this is the last remnant mm. populations that demonstrate this life half pounder life history. Few more millennia, it may disappear. Also, and everybody will stay out two, three, or four years before returning back to freshwater to spawn.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting question because you also have the, uh, you know, the jacks from from salmon chinook and coho, and you know, those are don't appear to be going away. And I think though that life history is kind of all or throughout, right?
0: You, you see, that that's, yeah, you there's. see, yeah, yeah, grills, you know. Uh, I remember a long time ago in Trey Combs' first book, he suggested that half-pounders might be grills, but the difference is that grills stay out one full year uh, before coming back, and they are sexually mature. Mm -hmm. Half-pounders are not sexually mature. Uh, There are a few precocious males that you'll find on the spawning grounds, Mm -hmm. but by and large, they're not. They hang around in those lower areas actually feeding through the winter and then migrating back in the springtime with your regular batch of smolts, mm. so there must be some advantage to escaping either the ocean environment or finding maybe better food resources in a warmer freshwater environment. Something like that, maybe.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to leave that uh, conversation on <laughs> until the next one.
0: Uh, yeah, I
1: think I think we're about there. I uh, we got we tackled a bunch of big questions. I think uh, I have a better perspective on w- what it's all about. Um, Maybe you could tell us in the the next six months or so, do you, what uh, you have new that we could expect. Um, you mentioned you have the the new book coming out. Anything else uh, we could look forward to?
0: Probably just I do presentations into uh, Northern California and Southern Oregon. I've done most of the clubs uh, once or twice. Uh, I keep doing that; it's always enjoyable. And of course, we're hoping to have some better runs this next late summer and fall on the Klamath and Rogue. So hmm. I'm hoping for some better fishing opportunities this upcoming year. The last few years through the drought has been very meager.
1: Gotcha. So so the drought has ended and then maybe ocean conditions are going to be getting better as well?
0: Correct. We've had two good winters. Ocean conditions have improved dramatically. So all that, you know, even though this year we're not expecting a good fall Chinook run in California, there's probably going to be restrictions. I am hoping to see some better half pounder and maybe first year returning adult fish this year. So I got my fingers crossed.
1: Perfect. Perfect. And, uh, uh before I let you go, I just want to check to see if I missed anything or if there's anything about these uh, you know, these fish or fisheries you want to you want to mention here.
0: No, I think uh people would be surprised even though there aren't as many people fishing, we still have some great opportunities for fly fishing. I think that will continue, you know, for many years. Uh there's a lot of uh, interesting things with dam removals. Been a number of dams removed on the Rogue. Proposed removals on the Upper Klamath. We're going to wait and see what that happens in the next couple of years. So there can be some pretty exciting things on the horizon.
1: Cool. And uh, before I let you go, I just want to make sure uh, you, you let us know where people can find you again. Where is the best place if they want to get have questions?
0: The questions you can uh, go through my website, which is www.dennisplee.com, L-E-E, and a little bit of information, some stuff on fly tying in there and uh, information on the book. Perfect.
1: Perfect. I'll leave a note uh I'll leave that link in the show notes and uh cover you there. So, yeah, Dennis, I just wanted to thank you uh for coming on the show and you know, getting some of this information out there. I know like I said at the start, I think there's a lot of people that probably have never heard of Half Pounders and and wonder what it's all about. So, I'm glad you came on and, you know, provided that perspective and I'm I'm hoping I'm going to get back down the Rogue. It's been a few years since I've been down there, so I'm hoping to get the kids out and and do a float and maybe even hit some of those uh, California streams if, if it all works out down the line. So, uh, yeah, thanks thanks for everything.
0: I want to thank you too, Dave. I think your podcasts have been excellent and are a great resource for anglers. So I plan to let people know, look at Wet Fly Swing with you.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Thanks a lot. We'll uh, talk to you soon. Okay, thanks. All right, bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash 26. I wanted to read one review from the show quickly here that's from tc farm boy on itunes tc Farmboy says these conversations hold a tremendous amount of information for any level of fly fisherman thanks tc for taking the time to leave a review you can go to wetfyswing.com slash review to find the step-by-step directions on leaving a itunes review if you get a chance the reviews help the show get out to a few more anglers and will hope hopefully help some people get into their first steelhead Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to catching up with you soon and maybe seeing you online or on the river. Later. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.